This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic churches on Sunday, February 6th, 2022. On the church's calendar, it's the fifth Sunday in ordinary time of year C. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm here to share some background and context information about the coming weekend's scripture. It's gathered from the work of actual scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators and offered here in the hope that it will make the Mass more meaningful for you. But, fair warning, all this information is sifted through my own tiny brain. If you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture readings as I talk about them, just go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship. And from the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. The Catholic Church's World Day of Prayer for Vocations is held annually on Good Shepherd Sunday. This year, that is May the 8th. Vocation literally means calling. It implies that our calling in life comes from someone or some group other than ourselves. It isn't merely an ego-driven self-indulgence. It conveys the understanding that each one of us born into this world has a calling from God concerning our life's work. Now, within the church, when we use the word vocations, it usually means we're talking about a calling to either the ordained or vowed religious life, that is, life as a deacon, priest, bishop, as a monk or nun, you'll find those folks in monasteries, or as an apostolic brother or sister, you'll find those people working in the world, very often in healthcare, education, or social justice ministries. The fact is that each one of the baptized is called to some unique form of service to others. Further, we are each given within ourselves the tools to carry out that calling. Whether single or married, young or old, superbly athletic or physically limited, rich or poor, parent or childless, every one of us has a specific calling. That calling is where we will find our deepest joy. Our job is to figure out what that calling is. Some folks do get a little extra help, as we say, from above in that search. This Sunday's first reading, known as the Call of Isaiah, and our Gospel, often called the Call of Simon Peter, both show us some important aspects of God's calling to each of us. Let's get started with the day's reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, with the train of his garment filling the temple. Seraphim were stationed above. Each of them had six wings. With two they veiled their faces. With two they veiled their feet. And with two they hovered aloft. They cried one to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of that cry, the frame of the door shook, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, 
Woe is me, I am doomed, for I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, holding an ember that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with it and said, See, now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed, your sin purged. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am, I said. Send me. Isaiah began his prophetic ministry in the same year that the Judean king Uzziah died. That was around the year 742 BC. It's a telling way for Isaiah to mark time, calling it the year King Uzziah died. It tells us that the king's death was a turning point in Isaiah's life. Perhaps you've experienced such an event, one so densely packed with either joy or sorrow that it divides your life into two utterly different existences, before the event and after. The year our daughter was born. The year my father was killed. The year the factory closed. The year I got clean and sober. There is grieving going on in the scene we have here. Isaiah must have, at the very least, admired Uzziah greatly. Uzziah was one of the good guys. Some scholars suggest the two might have been cousins. Others see Isaiah as at least a member of the royal court. Based on the level of the language Isaiah would use in his writing, it's clear he was a well-educated man. That alone speaks of some privileged position in Jerusalem society. This morning, Isaiah is at the great temple. It's dawn, time for the morning sacrifice. The smoke that produces hangs heavy in the air. The temple courtyard opens to the east, so the sun's emergence would accentuate the smoky haze. Wherever the light did penetrate, it would have been showing off the richness of the gold and other treasures adorning the walls and doors of the temple. It is in this setting that Isaiah experiences a vision of God enthroned in the Holy of Holies, the heart of the temple. That holy space was, after all, understood as God's dwelling place among humanity. God is accompanied by seraphim, literally fiery beings who sing God's praises. This is the only specific biblical mention of seraphim. The image used for the seraphim, described as having six wings, each pair having a different function, is certainly otherworldly. In the traditional Christian understanding of God's nine choirs of angels, the seraphim hold the highest rank. In the ancient Hebrew understanding, there are a multitude of different relative ranking systems assigned to the seraphim, but in everyone's system, they are a big deal. The song of praise attributed to them is called, by us, the Sanctus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
we repeat it at every Mass, just prior to the consecration of the gifts. In the midst of all this, Isaiah is utterly overwhelmed. One might accurately say this vision put the fear of God into him. That is, Isaiah reached a new level of understanding about his own smallness, his own inadequacy, his own transgressions. He confesses this new understanding out loud, only to have a seraph touch his lips with a burning ember from the divine fire and pronounce him absolved of all shortcomings. Once assured that he had been purified, Isaiah was for the first time able to hear God's invitation to serve as prophet. This man, who just a moment before had been immobilized in awe, volunteers for the job. He volunteers. God will tell Isaiah he will be sent to proclaim to a wicked people whose hearts have grown dull and whose ears have grown closed. But he volunteers. Isaiah's life would include the reign of four Judean kings. Most scholars think he died at the hands of the corrupt king Manasseh sometime around the year 680 B.C. On a day that began with ordinary routine, what had been the sadness of the year King Uzziah died is transformed by the moment of Isaiah's call. Sunday's responsorial psalm, taken from Psalm 138, relates more to a vision experience than to a specific call. One aspect of the translation, however, has a significant effect on what we might see as the psalm's purpose. Understand, first, that the theology in this passage comes from long centuries of the Israelites' gradual growth in understanding a monotheistic faith. It's helpful, I think, to view these words through that lens. Here's what I mean. The lectionary offers angels as the translation of the Hebrew word Elohim. We encounter that word elsewhere translated as God, or as gods, or as idols. As I read the verses, I invite you to mentally substitute idols for angels. Here we go. In the sight of the angels, I will sing your praises, Lord. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with all my heart, for you have heard the words of my mouth. In the presence of the angels, I will sing your praise. I will worship at your holy temple and give thanks to your name. In the sight of the angels, I will sing your praises, Lord. Because of your kindness and your truth, for you have made great above all things your name and your promise. When I called, you answered me. You built up strength within me. In the sight of the angels, I will sing your praises, Lord. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks to you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth, and they shall sing the ways of the Lord. Great is the glory of the Lord. In the sight of the angels, I will sing your praises, Lord. Your right hand saves me. The Lord will complete what he has done for me. Your kindness, O Lord, endures forever. Forsake not the work of your hands. 
in the sight of the angels. I will sing your praises, Lord. Did you do the substitution? Then did you hear the refrain as a repeated denunciation of idol worship? Either translation you choose, it is a worthy prayer and promise to God. My personal tendency is to prefer the idols version. After all, humanity's all-time favorite idols have been wealth, power, and moments of pleasure. We've kept them throughout history. We haven't eliminated them. Instead, we've invented new ways to achieve them, to escape into them, to exacerbate the inequities that separate us. I think that one has special significance to our time and place. Our second reading continues with St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In previous weeks, we've read St. Paul encouraging this community to remain unified in Christ, to put aside jealousy and competitiveness, to use the spiritual gifts they've been given in service of others, and to do so always with great love. This week, we jump to chapter 15 of the letter, First, Paul writes, this is a reminder to the community. That's a basic principle when you're teaching adults. If you're not telling them something that's new to them, admit the fact that they've already heard this. Don't insult their intelligence. Then you'll be free to remind and perhaps even reframe the information in a new way. Also, when Paul says gospel, understand that he is not referring to a written book or scroll. There is still a lot of ongoing research and debate about when specific books of the New Testament were finally written down. Paul is not referring to a written record at all. Instead, he is talking about what existed then, a message, something to be preached and taught. This reminder is not about getting the readers to retain specific information as much as it is about helping them recall their initial experience of falling in love with the Christ. Paul seeks to put them back in touch with the fervor they felt when the gospel brought them more true joy and freedom than they had ever thought possible. Throughout the passage, he acknowledges his own debt to those who came before, the eyewitnesses and those who devoted themselves to accurately passing along the message. So here comes the reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. I am reminding you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you indeed received, and in which you also stand. Through it, you are also being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, Christ appeared to more than five hundred brothers at once, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, 
then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born abnormally, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me has not been ineffective. Indeed, I have toiled harder than all of them. Not I, however, but the grace of God that is with me. Therefore, whether it be I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Much of Paul's writing can be difficult to understand. He's full of run-on sentences, and there's always great distance between an antecedent and its object. But here, the message is concise. It can be taken as containing an early Christian creed. Point one, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus offered himself freely to make reconciliation between God and humanity possible. Number two, in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus was indeed the Christ, the anointed one who had been prophesied. Number three, he was buried. No tricks. He really died. Number four, he was raised on the third day. This resurrection was his defeat of death on behalf of us all. And number five, the resurrected Jesus was witnessed by and interacted with many. That's a pretty good initial summary of the movement and the message on that day. In the remainder of the passage, Paul asserts his own apostolic credibility. He does openly claim for himself the title apostle, though he tempers it with a statement of his own diminished status. There were many false prophets and teachers of nonsense in Paul's time, so the need to connect with the apostolic lineage was critical to establishing his veracity. He describes himself as one born abnormally. That's a reference to a Caesarean delivery. Here it's used to signify that he did not know the earthly Jesus, as did the other apostles, and that he was last to encounter the risen Christ. He reflects on his own unworthiness as a former persecutor of the nascent church. Finally, he renounces any credit for the fruits of his own gifts by acknowledging that God's grace is the source of all his successful efforts. Now on to the Gospel reading. There Luke combines stories from two different aspects of the early community's collective remembrances of Jesus. The first story. Jesus, who in Luke's telling was already acquainted with Simon Peter, seeks his help, then calls him to what would eventually become his apostolic role. Peter's brother Andrew and another set of brothers, James and John, are called as well. But that seems to be an almost incidental reference later in the passage. The second story, an amazingly abundant catch of fish. These two narratives are woven one inside the other. So here it is, a reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. While the crowd was pressing in on Jesus and listening to the word of God, 
He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats there alongside the lake. The fishermen had disembarked and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, he asked him to put out a short distance from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. After he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon said in reply, Master, we have worked hard all night and have caught nothing. But at your command, I will lower the nets. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets were tearing. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come to help them. They came and filled both boats, so that the boats were in danger of sinking. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at the knees of Jesus and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The astonishment at the catch of fish they had made seized him and all those with him, and likewise James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to the shore, they left everything and followed him. Notice the subject of the teaching Jesus did is not mentioned at all, nor is there any comment on the makeup of the audience. The preaching here is a setting, a backdrop, for the more significant events, the call and the great catch of fish. Luke puts the call event later in the public ministry of Jesus than do either Mark or Matthew. Mark and Matthew refer to the Sea of Galilee as the place where it happened. Luke calls the location the Lake of Gennesaret. No worries. It's the same place, just different names. That body of water has a lot of aliases. It's also known as the Lake of Tiberias. There are aspects of this call story woven throughout the passage. Earlier in his gospel, Luke had established that Jesus and Simon knew each other. Simon Peter had already watched his own mother-in-law in his own house, cured of a fever by a simple word from Jesus. Now Jesus strolls over and hops into Simon's boat. No permission to come aboard, sir? Request here. He just hops on. I infer in that the beginning of Simon's call already. It's nonverbal in that moment, but it's there. Simon raises no objection. Next, when Jesus asks him to put the boat just off the shore, he complies. As I read this account, the climactic moment of the call comes when Jesus is done teaching. He uses a phrase heavily laden with meaning. Put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch. I hear this subtext. Do as I ask, and you will quickly find yourself in over your head. Of course, as the story progresses, the subtext switches to, Because it is I who asked it of you, do it and the results will be heavenly. 
A pun was almost unavoidable there. Sorry. Simon Peter does offer this carpenter the benefit of his judgment as a professional fisherman, but nonetheless he immediately consents to the instruction, even though it makes no earthly sense. Of course, the result of the instruction makes no earthly sense either. On seeing the display of such abundant divine providence, Simon reacts much like the reluctant Isaiah in the temple, and like Paul, self-proclaimed as unworthy in his letter. Simon professes his unworthiness to even be in the presence of Jesus. But with one more gentle nudge, all four men get out of the fish business to become itinerant apprentices to this new master. These, the first followers Jesus selected, were men on the lower rung of society's ladder. He would eventually commission them to carry his work forward. These men were often not even literate. And in Peter, he chose a man who was impetuous, who often acted before thinking, a ready-fire-aim kind of guy. The man whom Jesus selected to oversee the birth of his church was a fisherman. Notice also that within a very few minutes, Simon Peter goes from addressing Jesus as master, a term common to teachers in general, to addressing him as Lord with all its overtones of divinity. He was a common tradesman, but he was no dummy. It is only Luke's account with his weaving in the story of the fish catch that offers some explanation of why these four men would so abruptly leave all their resources behind and immediately follow Jesus. The three principal scripture selections at this Mass show us three men, each with a call to proclaim the Word of God, each with a ready excuse for not wanting or deserving the job, each also has a moment of recognizing his own insufficiency and brokenness when faced with the divine love that never fails. Nonetheless, each is equipped by grace to go forward in his own mission. It's a remarkably neat package deal in this liturgy of the Word. That's it for now. I plan to do this again next week, and you're invited to come along. May you see God's abundant blessings touching your life every moment until then.